Welcome back to the Election Whisperer. It's going to be a great conversation today, friends, because I have secured an awesome fellow political scientist for you to talk about his research. Uh, his name is David Mosscrop. He has a PhD in poli-sci, like I do, and it specializes in political behavior, voter psychology, uh, human psychology, stuff like that. He's a contributing columnist at Washington Post. But most importantly, and this is how I came about him, author of a great book, and that book I really recommend everyone pick up, and that book's called Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. And, um, you know, that, as soon as I saw that on the internets, on the Twitters, I was like, oh, I got to follow this dude and reach out to him because if you've been a long time uh, follower of me, you'll know I often talk about this book project I have underway that I've, of course, had to shelve a little bit to the side to go save democracy with Strike Pack. But um, it looks at voter um, voter civic uh, literacy, voter interest, and, and especially looking um, at, you know, how much our political culture and how it's structured to disencourage Americans from civic literacy and then what that means for the the market that has created you know in the media space the blog internet space um, radio uh, and even in campaigns to exploit low civic literacy low political interest via fear and that you know a major psychological driver of our polarization problems here in the u.s so definitely excited to have you on david say hello to everyone well hello thanks for having me it's a it's an absolute pleasure and it, it's always nice to talk about this stuff because who doesn't like getting depressed about politics <laughs> yeah that's so true right i mean right now i actually find myself trying to stimulate depression and fear down here in the u.s because in classic uh left side of the aisle fashion a large part of people are like oh good we beat donald trump everything's fine now <laughs> right? and in yes. the meantime like if you were actually reading the news and paying attention like the you know 10 to 15 percent of the total citizenry here in the u.s that actually reads real news and real information now, uh, then you would know that things are not fine, right? That was an opening salvo on trying to end democracy with Trump's um, efforts between the election and, and the inaugural. And uh, the GOP is gearing up to uh, make a much more aggressive push against democracy here in these next few election cycles. So, Yeah, I think, I mean, once you get into these cycles of decline, it's very hard to pull out of them. So this idea that you know someone's going to come along in four years and fix problems that have been brewing for 150 years is let's let's be charitable and say misguided. Oh, just just yeah yeah just to to uh, put it mildly, right? <laughs> now Canada, I do a lot of so so for full disclosure. I mean, it hasn't been so so much lately because the election stuff is gone. But I did a lot of Canadian radio in my time. And I know how vested Canada, the population, you know, it's uh, at least it's civically engaged part and its media system and its government are in what's going on down in the U.S., right? Because Canada understands that if, if the U.S. is sick, <laughs> it's going to you know, literally come over the border, right? <laughs> right now with the pandemic and our decision to just let ours rage through and, and murder, you know, a half million people. Um, but, you know, in terms of our, ge our geopolitical position, if the U.S. is, 
you know, electing someone like Donald Trump and, and threatening our NATO, NATO allies and the entire geopolitical world order since Bretton Woods and, you know, World War II, it's not something that Canada can ignore because it's going to affect them directly. So I have found, you know, my interactions with Canada to be pretty um, interesting because a lot of the people I speak with there seem to know more about American politics than Americans do. And, and in some cases, more about American politics than we do our own. Uh, we get, it's fascinating to watch <clears throat> because we get a ton of media coverage across the border of, of the United States. So there's lots of, of media here from the U.S. that comes into the Canadian market. We pay attention to it. Ditto culture. And it's, it's discussed in our newspapers. There's tons of it. Both, you know, U.S. specific stuff and U.S. Canada stuff. We are closely aligned uh, with NATO, with NORAD, with through thing, you know the, through a trade agreement through the Na the NAFTA trade agreement or whatever it's called now the new NAFTA <clears throat> NAFTA um, 2.0 uh, the vast majority of our trade goes to the United States we have close relationships personal relationships business relationships and of course the U.S. is the global hegemon so there's all kinds of reasons that we are we are close and in fact it's funny if you grew up in, in as I did in central Ontario or southern Ontario you would sort of get the US news affiliate stations <laughs> so you would be watching <laughs> cartoons on Fox or on ABC or whatever and we would get the same the same uh, news stations and so I mean we were in deeply embedded in the same uh, culture but and this is this is critical our institutions are still different and so in, in many ways while the US informs how we think and what we know our politics is quite a bit different. Yes, it is. I mean, nothing speaks to its difference more than while we were suffering under the idiocy of Donald Trump, you guys had sexy Justin Trudeau, right? <laughs> Smart and sexy Justin Trudeau. Uh, you know, so that tells you a little bit. But yes, I, I think most Americans are unaware that it's our institutional design, this presidential system versus a parliamentary system, first off, which very few countries bothered to copy because it's a crappy design. And, uh, you know, it, that's why we have these two parties. And, and well, I don't want to spoil the end when we, we start talking about factionalism in the U.S. and these two parties. So I'm going to stop there and I'm going to let you tell everybody who's listening to the pod uh, your book and uh, tell us about your book, your thesis um, and what you wrote about in that. So it opens with with Donald Trump getting elected and me and my buddy were playing PlayStation <laughs> and watching the returns and on our laptops, on, 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 I can't remember what, CNN or something like that, as Canadians do, as many Canadians do because of what we were just talking about. And we were sort of like having pizza and having a beer and watching electoral returns. And eventually it looked like, okay, Donald Trump's going to win. So we decided to close the laptops, grab another beer, and just go back to video games because we just couldn't process it <laughs> at the time as many people can relate. Couldn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, uh, when I started writing, someone called me up and said, do you want to write a book? And I said, I sure do. And, and I was working on my PhD. And I decided to commit the ultimate academic cardinal sin, which was I decided to write a book that that normal people could read <laughs> instead of yeah. an academic book. So I, I went and did that. And basically, the thesis of the book it comes from my doctoral dissertation work, which was on the psychology of, of political decision making through deliberate through democratic deliberation. The book was about the psychology of political decision making in democracies. And what I argue is that we have this expectation for ourselves that we are rational, dispassionate, calculating machine 
who weigh the evidence and, and sort of output this ideal political decision that we think is best and best fits us. This hangover from the Enlightenment ideal of the rational individual. But it's complete bull. And what in reality we get is this jumbled mess of prejudices and factionalism and toxic identitarianism and bad heuristics and all of this stuff that combines to, for, uh, within us to produce actually pretty crummy political decisions. And my argument is that that, that isn't necessarily who we are, but, but it's who we've become. And it's who we're encouraged to be by our environment and our institutions. Worse in the US than in some places, but no one's perfect. And so what we should do is try to bridge the gap to be more, more like the ideal while accepting that we'll never entirely reach it. And what solutions do you offer towards that to, to be more ideal in, in our decision-making politically? There's a ton of stuff, but the fact is there's no, there's no single answer to it. There's nothing that's going to, to solve all our problems because as I argue in the book, we're not designed to be citizens. We haven't evolved to be citizens. It's not who we are as, as biological beings, right? And so the challenge is that we're trying to get our brains to do things that is actually pretty hard. And the analogy I use is like, you're not born knowing how to hit a fastball. It's really hard to hit a fastball. But if you work at it, you can do so. Uh, making good political decisions is a skill that you've got to work at. But you've got to want to, right? And so the step one is, is wanting to do it. If you don't want to do better, if you're okay with lazy, bad heuristics and letting the parties be your guide, even though they say one thing one day and the opposite thing the next day if the, if the opposing party decides to change their mind. If you're okay with that, then there's just very little we can do other than trying to get the, the elites to behave. But if you want to do better, there are, there are things you can do like uh, understanding how it is you make decisions in the first place, recognizing the emotions and the, and the uh, biased uh, commitments that you have in your life that are going to push you in one way or the other, being very careful about what kind of news you consume and varying your sources, but making sure they're credible sources. Participating in civic life to build skills, but, but again, checking yourself to figure out when it is you're, you're becoming biased. And being willing to change your mind. And we've all had that moment where we get our backs up about something for whatever reason. And we dig into our position, even though it becomes more and more untenable. Recognizing that and moving back from that is really tough, but really important. And sometimes you see it. You remember when so Dick Cheney came out in favor of same-sex marriage? Yeah. Because his daughter happened to be a lesbian. Right. That was one of those moments where he had something in his life that changed his perspective. He was open to that. Would that we could all have that, but ideally without having to have someone in our immediate life be the reason we changed our mind, that we could empathize with someone else that we don't even know or with the evidence so that we could change our mind. Being open to that kind of thing is awfully powerful, but it means you've got to give up the sort of toxic partisan identitarianism that, that is so common uh, among many of us, but especially prevalent in the U.S. It is, it is. So could you do me a favor then? So, all right, one of the things that to understand, and I, I wanted listeners to hear the whole, ex, you know, the whole like brief of the book, though I really think you should get the book and read through, especially if you're interested in learning some of those skills that David was just talking about. I mean, you know, the reason, uh, the more educated that you become about civics and decision making and unconscious bias and psychology and all of these things, you'll find 
make you a better citizen. Uh, so it is a great, like, I mean, the, you know, the, most of the self-help books are useless, but this is not a self-help book, but it could self-help you, <laughs> right? Yes. Because it, <laughs> um, and there's plenty of people, you know, who um, I think can benefit from, from hearing and, and using those tools that you laid out. So here, though, like, is where, you know, we kind of run into this demarcation between up there in Canada and down here in the U.S., right? It's not, so we have these institutional differences, as I was discussing, but we also have very different political cultures, right? Political environments. And that is partially due also to structure and institutional design. But down here in the U.S., a lot of Americans are surprised to find out that our election process is very atypical uh, for Western democracies, insofar as it is basically a Wild West environment. There's no time limits, virtually no time limits on how long a campaign season can last. And that has led us to evolve into what we call in political science, the permanent campaign, right? Um, There's no free speech. I mean, because of free speech, there's virtually no limits on what you can say or um, argue about each other in political advertising. So why don't you talk a little bit about how an election, a presidential election occurs in Canada versus down here? Yeah, so the point that institutions shape behavior and outcomes is utterly critical. You're absolutely right. And in Canada, we are we are no better than anyone in the world. We have good institutions, though, and those institutions compensate for a lot of shortcomings. So here, elections are a pretty tidy affairs. They're run federally by a nonpartisan, independent, arms-length agency, Elections Canada, uh, who reports to Parliament. So rather than the United States where you've got electoral rules set, state, county, here Elections Canada does all that work. We also have districting that's done by a panel that includes judges that is also independent and removed from the political process. So we don't have the same sort of gerrymandering concerns uh, that you have in the United States. And the elections have uh, pretty tight spending limits and and rules. Uh, We don't take Uh, union money or corporate money for federal elections and most provincial elections. That's closely regulated too. And the the electoral period itself, while it's sort of starting to creep a little bit, uh, is actually quite short. A handful of weeks, something like, I think the max, I can't remember the maximum is maybe uh, 10 weeks, 11 weeks now, something like that. I think the average election is, is, you know, probably six weeks, give or take. The law recently changed, but it's not, it's not, there's no permanent campaign like in the United States, and it doesn't go on for months and months and months. It's a fairly compact and quick affair. And, and, and the parties sort of behave themselves. We get skullduggery here too, but it's, it's nothing like in the U.S. where people are trying to rig the rules. I mean, I say people, but Republicans are trying to uh, rig the rules and, and suppress turnout. It's, it's pretty uncommon for anything like that to happen here. And in fact, the, the current government um, has tried to undo and has successfully undone a lot of what the previous conservative government had tried to do to make voting slightly harder and to remove it from, from Canadians abroad, the right to vote from Canadians abroad. So that's pretty much how it works here. And, and to be honest, our elections are extraordinarily well run. They're, they're among Yes, they are. And, and uh, you know, I, I only asked the question because I knew the answer, but I wanted my audience to understand because we don't get we haven't had a chance on the pod yet anyway to talk about how conditional 
on our institutional design and these core, this core difference, especially elections. Uh, it is here in the U.S. from c- countries like Canada. So, you know, a lot of the things that get discussed as reform ideas, ranked choice voting or term limits or even campaign finance reform, you know, the modest types that are proposed aren't, go- you know, those are all what I would call mechanisms, right? But our problem is that we have an election system that is literally designed to create hyperpartisanship and polarization because it creates a financial incentive for many, many different actors running from the media to journalists to, I mean, I'm I'm launching a super PAC, so technically speaking, me, um, (laughs) you know, um, to have um, and and the campaign industry, which is now, you know, a billion dollar industry, Mm -hmm. to have the longest elections possible, the most, you know, um, divisive and rhetorically um, you know, combative type of politics possible. And the media system here has evolved. It's a symbiotic relationship, right? So when you look at what Fox News does, you know, there is a method to the madness. Yes, Car- Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, you know, are pushing voters, um, their Republican audience into extremism and hyperpartisanship by the things that they focus on, you know, setting the agenda, the framing that they use for those issues with framing. But they are all also trying to win more elections, right? They they have a partisan allegiance to a political party that they recognize their media shows, their structure supports electorally. And so you really see uh, over this last 10, 15 years especially the evolution of this symbiotic fear factory, right? And when you wonder why it is that, you know, uh, in in research for political science and political behavior, probably the most, in terms of modern stuff, the most robust finding is that hyperpartisanship and polarization here in the U.S. is not symmetric. It's asymmetric. So it's much more concentrated on the right within the conservative party, which is the Republican Party, than it is on the left. And so, you know, that and that's true when you look at institutional polarization amongst political elites, when you look at the electorate in terms of mass polarization, it is one of the most um, robust and, um, I guess, uh, validated findings that, you know, our polarization problem is being driven predominantly from polarization, hyperpartisanship within Republicans. And, and, and it's no um, accident that their campaign tech t- tactics are much more rhetorically intense, uh, much more focused on fear and emotion. And their um, media system, of course, is, you know, and an, uh, has created an ecosystem. And that's just not something that I mean, Canadians probably could access that now via via cable or satellite. But talk a little bit about like how how political d- a debate occurs in the public in, in Canada. We have, broadly speaking, a a media ecosystem that is, I would say, problematic but but functional and not nearly as extreme as in in the United States. I mean, there there is some of what you get in the Fox mold and worse here, but nowhere near the same extent. we have a handful of outlets that are, you know, broadly partisan, sort of like you can identify them as center, center right, but they're not exactly out there uh, stumping blatantly for, for parties in an attempt to, to you know, create a, a 
ideological ecosystem. There's a, they're broadly speaking, we're actually sort of like uninspired centrist liberalism. It's common to the media space in Canada. Uh, and it's, it's benign in the sense that it, it isn't the sort of toxic polarizing force that, that you often get in the United States. It sort of props up the sort of liberal uh, hegemony in which Canada exists. And it, so it's still doing things that we might say we'd rather not do, but it's nowhere near as polarizing as in, in the U.S. So I'm glad you mentioned the elites because this is, this is an absolutely critical point. There was a report here in Canada by a, a democracy organization called Samara a couple of years ago. And they found that to the extent that populism existed in Canada, it was elite driven. It was parties and other elites who were, who were stoking this sort of populism. And that's also true in the United States, too, I think, to a large extent. That if, if you, all of a sudden tomorrow, had media elites and political elites, especially on the, on the Republican side, deciding that they didn't want to do this toxic culture war identitarian thing anymore and started sending different signals, you would get different behavior. I am so glad that you just mentioned that because, you know, I go till I'm blue in my face on my Twitter timeline and in a lot of these uh, lectures and public speeches and whatever I do. And I try to get the, I try to get people to understand, look, it, it is conditional on elite signaling, right? So it flows from the top down. And, you know, the, the, like, the, especially right now, because, uh, you know, and this is a shameless plug, but I'm working on this column about how if the mainstream Republican Party d allows the other half of the party or the other three quarters now to double down on this next redistricting, right, which is coming up and, and the Democrats drop the ball electorally so they didn't flip any state houses. So the Republicans are in the driver's seat for this next reapportionment redistricting process, which for your Canadian friends that are listening, determines the seats and and how they're cut up for the U.S. House of Representatives and um, is a contributing mechanism. It's not a cause of polarization. It's a mechanism because over the last two decades in the U.S., these, these districts have been cut up in a way to cluster partisans into districts and maximize political power. And in so doing, it electorally incentivize extremism and hyperpartisanship rather than bipartisanship and moderation. We've got about 15% of the chamber right now electorally drawn in a way that they the two parties are competitive and if they go in with what they're wanting to do this time with the reapportionment and redistricting is continue the gerrymander with the hopes that they can actually gerrymander themselves into a house majority before the 2022 election cycle even starts and so what that is going to do is is further reduce those you know that sad 15 percent of competitive districts down even further right and so i'm arguing it's a suicide pack right if you go forward with this than for the so-called mainstream GOP. And, you know, we're talking about very conservative Republicans like Mitch McConnell, but he's still a mainstreamer, right? Um, they are basically writing a suicide pack and, um, you know, ensuring, ensuring not only that the Republican Party is, is dead as in its old form, but potentially taking American democracy down with them, right? So, um, you know, but, if, but as you just said, if they were to realize that there's actually strength in numbers and that they are on this collision course with with uh, you know with basically party death like you know the mainstreamers now have the power the influence the money 
to, you know, go and start sending these signals, right? And if it was done in a coordinated way with a strong push, the voters are following the signals, right? So you see um, Republican opinion data here move away from Biden being legitimately elected after Election Day, as Trump told the big lie, and as it was validated by everybody else in the Republican Party, less and less Republicans in data would say that he was legitimately elected, right? <laughs> so, you know, the reverse is possible, right? If, if the party had come out of January and said, you know, issued an official statement saying, you know, by, the election was fine. It was actually the most safe and secure, validated election we've ever had. And we know that thanks to Donald Trump and his team and all their erroneous lawsuits and challenges. So we actually know we had the best election we've ever had in the United States, right? Um, so, you know, if, if the entire RNC had rejected the big lie, we would not be seeing data points at 12%, 19% Biden is a legitimate president amongst Republican identifiers. So I'm really glad that you're focusing on on that elite top-down signaling factor as a major component, right? It's not super, you know, it's interesting. It's not exactly a foreign concept to American Republicans to be semi-decent on this stuff. You know, we think back to John McCain interrupting a heckler and saying, no, Barack Obama isn't a Kenyan Muslim. He's an American and a patriot, right? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago that mainstream Republicans, you know, behave themselves a little bit. So it's not like you need to go back to the, to the to Truman, for God's sakes, you only have to go back to McCain. No, that's exactly right. I mean, so like, you know, they got caught in a vicious cycle where the media, the right wing media was driving the voters nuts. And so were so were there. I mean, the Carl Rovian campaign model before Carl Rove came along you know, on the left and the right, elections were about persuasion of moderate independence, right? Karl Rove comes along and says, no, 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 since we've got this party sorting, you know, he, he probably wouldn't have known that term, but he understood where the coalitions were headed at that time. And he's like, no, elections are about outvoting the other side, right? And that includes your independence, your, your, your slate of the independence. So like a lot of the stuff that I'm telling Democrats they need to do and to modernize and, you know, straight pack is designed to do this is stuff that is responding to changes that have already been made on the republican side so you know by the time you get into 2004 2009 you're seeing republican voters not only hit through the media with this pretty intense messaging about democrats but you start to see campaign materials get crazy right like oh you know they're gonna they're gonna kill babies and they're gonna take your guns right <laughs> like all the guns and you know what that had um, was a radicalizing effect, but it really is psychological warfare, right? I mean, ultimately, when you look at what, you know, partisan media, like that's activist based, and um, campaign stuff, I mean, it, it really is, you know, it's a marketing psychological effort. And when you combine that with what your research and, and others shows about the capabilities of humans, it's not voters necessarily, it's humans, right? And humans are the same in Canada as they are in the US. Um, and, you know, even in Turkey or Iran, our institutions, our political cultures, our civic cultures, our religious cultures shape our behavior. But inherently, we have pretty similar genetics and brain capacity and emotional capacity. And, you know, when you it's bad enough up in Canada where you kind of have this natural, you know, 
inability to do democracy because of the limits of human behavior, especially when it's comfortable, right? So like if we were uncomfortable, like if our governments were failing, if we were living under dictatorships, we would have an incentive to pay attention to politics. But in countries that are well run, or at least reasonably well run, there's a massive disengagement incentive. And actually, as I used to tell my students, that's that's actually a sign of a really healthy society where government's working. If your government's working so well that 80% of your population virtually ignores it, that actually means it's functioning reasonably well. Uh, It can, uh, unfortunately, also end up being a cause reason for when it starts to degrade. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, in Canada, voter turnout is pretty low. It's been low for some time. Uh, There's a huge spread between older folks voting and younger folks voting. And I always say that uh, you know, it's it, what you want is a good balance of voter turnout so that you can help set the agenda. But I, I want to go back to something you said because I think it's so critical is that when you're talking about the Rove years and the decision to do things differently, there was also a decision in the 60s, 70s, and 80s by Republican elites led by, among other people, William F. Buckley and, and the National Review folks and Barry Goldwater to say this country, is, America, is too liberal. Everyone's a liberal. Dwight Eisenhower is a liberal. And we need to split off and have conservatism in America. And, and that is the beginning of the culture war. And, and I think, you know, even in the 1950s, the American Political Science Association wrote its, its address, the U.S. has a lack of polarization problem. Yes, it totally <laughs> well, did. It's called, well, be for, careful for what the, you wish for. <laughs> for the American audience, actually, that, that thing is called um, the Responsible Party Model. And it came out in the 50s, as, as David just cited, and it actually argued, we have a problem in America. We have these two parties, and they're too similar, and they don't really stand for everything. And there's a bunch of liberals in the one party and a bunch of conservatives in the other. And what we really need is two distinct parties in which, you know, conservatives are in one and liberals are in the other, right? And this does sound familiar, right? So here we are. We get to that point. And, you know, I mean, as, as David just alluded to, like this conception that polarization is a problem with its roots in the 1990s. I mean, the, the roots run through the 1990s and they do get exasperated by, by Newt Gingrich saying, you know, look, we're going to do this opposition strategy and we're just going to be very, very rhetorically aggressive against Clinton and, you know, hyper-partisan and da-da-da. And then that gets, of course, picked up by Rove and, and, and you know, refined and refined. And now it's getting refined again to the point where we're destroying democracy. But the fact is, like, when you get down to the root cause, I argue, right? Here, we didn't have, the reason we had liberals in the Demo- in the cons- uh, Republican Party down here and conservatives in the Republican Party um, or um, Democratic Party for a long time in the U.S., you know, that New Deal period coming into the 1970s and into the 80s is because we didn't have the, the cult, you alluded to culture wars, right? Well, there wasn't really much to fight about in the 1940s and the 1950s in terms of American culture. It was dominated by white male Christian conservatives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there wasn't women's right to, rights to fight about, gay rights to fight about, race, um, you know, racial equality in the South was, you know, still bubbling l- under the surface. And, you know, the power, so I argue, like, the reason we see democracy struggling everywhere is 
and not just here in the U.S. where it's where it's on on me. It's basically on life support. I mean, these next two elections will determine probably America's democratic future, right? But in Canada and and, and even in the U.K. with Brexit, it's healthier. It's struggling, but it's healthier. But the, but it's struggling because everywhere for all of humans' evolution societies the power structure has been fairly constant in the West, right? It's been sequestered in white men, and now it's not, <laughs> right? And so when we look at like the, the root cause of polarization, I'm arguing in my book, it, it's actually the end of this long-term power paradigm and the movement into the egalitarian era that we're living in this transitional period, right? And if we can survive it, if, if each country can survive this transition, we'll be better. But right now, we have this, you know, mass, mass fear amongst especially whites. And it's not just sequestered to white men, because white women with the right um, ideological predisposition, predispositions fall into that camp as well. But I mean, there's, it's not an accident in the US, especially, and in other countries that, you know, where you're seeing uh, tolerance to, you know, restrict democracy or do things that would have been, you know, inconceivable 15 years ago. It is the white and largely less educated population that is pushing those things. Yeah, and they're and, and they're finding allies and being and, and being effectively moved by political folks who want to exploit that. And you know, there's a great book called How Democracies Die by Ziblatt and Levitsky, and, and they talk about the sort of soft guardrails of democracy, and they talk about forbearance and say, look, politicians have got to exercise forbearance, which is to say there are things you can do and maybe even get away with, but you shouldn't do them because you end up worse in the long run. And if you look at the Trump years, it is a great example of just violation of forbearance after violation of forbearance. I mean, that didn't originate with Trump. It's certainly, you see in the Nixon administration, you see it in the Clinton administration, you certainly see it in the Bush administration, but it, it certainly was far worse than the Trump administration. Oh, and far, far worse. Like, I, yeah, the, yeah. To yeah to, I mean, look at the, court. be, the courts are a great right. example of that, right? This sort of court nonsense. And then you create a system where, well, what do you do if you're a Democrat? Do you get pushed around like a dummy or do you push back? And, and you know, you just mentioned that you were creating a super PAC. Because those are the rules of the game, and you'd be a fool not to play by the rules that the other side's playing by. And that's a big challenge for Democrats, is they keep getting pushed around because they won't play by the same rules as the Republicans. But then, of course, you get in the problem that it creates a race to the bottom. So you've got to find a way to try to reverse that while also playing by the same rules. And it's awfully tough. Um, I, I think Biden has done a good example of, uh, has done a good job of sort of trying to right the ship uh, when it comes to that while also being kind of tough on some things. And so there's some hope there, but there's gotta be a way for party elites to make it a, a, an agreement amongst themselves to dial it back or else it's just a death cult, right? Yeah, yeah. So here I find myself kind of kind of full circle, right? So I, you know, I I um, was on the Lincoln Project's advisory board, right? Lincoln Project is like at its heart, it was like, okay, look left, you suck at messaging, and this is true, right? Uh, this is something that I've <laughs> argued for years, and it's because they don't Since do what gore. Republicans do. They don't make it emotive. They don't come for the jugular. Or they don't nationalize elections that are down ballot. And you know, Lincoln Project at least was going to show the Biden team 
team, the Biden campaign, Amer- you know, the left. How do you run a something called a referendum campaign, which is something they invented back in the 80s on the right, and we still don't do on the left, right? And so, you know, Lincoln Project's, you know, um, you know, worth really comes with that narrative setting and that referendum theme that they helped people stay on throughout the cycle. 300 ads, zero about issues, right? Always about values, always about, you know, um, democracy versus Trump. Because yes, I mean, you, you're right. There was this modus operandus of what, of how far you could point, push the lines of decency. And they were getting stretched out on the right. There is no doubt about it before Donald Trump came down the golden escalator. But Donald Trump immediately from that moment and then on through the election cycles and then into his presidency, he did not just stretch those. He 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 expanded what could be done by leaps and bounds. And and you know, when here we are sitting in a post-Trump presidency world in which we know a sitting US president, amongst many, many other things, tried to pull a coup. Okay, and almost succeeded. And it wasn't just the big lie and, you know, between the public opinion stuff and all the election challenges. He tried to get the Justice Department to pull a coup for him. He may have delayed sending, you know, military assistance to our capital while it laid under siege by insurrectionists that he sent a physical coup. So like these are these are not like tremors in democracy. These are earthquakes in American democracy. Right. And yet, like, our system seems really, I mean, even in the discursive part of the system, ill-prepared to come to terms with how uh, far down the slope we've we've fallen down here. And I wonder what that looks like from the Canadian perspective. Well, so I was covering Trump for McLean's magazine here, which is sort of an equivalent of Time or or Newsweek, a sort of um, news magazine. And for several months, I was writing columns on Donald Trump when he, when he won. And one of the first things I wrote about was how Donald Trump was an authoritarian. And that was, I, I think that was January after he'd won. And at the time, that was sort of a controversial statement. But to me, it was just obvious. Right? You could just see it. And, and it was there from, from but, I, but a lot of people were reluctant to say it. Because how could an authoritarian be running the United States of America? Right? It, it went against the narrative. And later, when he was behaving more like a fascist or fascistic, at least, uh, then you start, I, I wrote something about that, too. But then you started seeing pieces in the Washington Post and elsewhere saying, OK, we need to take seriously this question of whether or not Trump is a fascist. And I think most people concluded that not, not exactly, but there's some fascistic tendencies that we need to be concerned about. But again, it was shocking to think about that. But when you look at the American system, and you alluded to this earlier, uh, it is... A, it is a bad structural system, and it's been called America's most dangerous export, which is really saying something. And, and you know, it, it is also there was this sort of paradox for a long time. Political scientists, you know, Juan Lind studied this very closely. Uh, the the U.S. presidential system doesn't seem to work anywhere in the world except the U.S. Why is that so? The answer seems to be it doesn't work there either. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it was working for, you know, it was working for white people, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, especially white men. Uh, but now that it's being tested for true democracy, right? True democracy in, in the U.S. is 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 young. I mean, we're talking 50 years, right? And now what we're seeing in, you know, these Georgia laws, the Arizona law is, okay, now we must restrict the rights of minorities to vote. That's at its heart what it is. And, and in beyond that, because we've moved 
moved into this this like twilight zone down here from the partisanship and the hyper part hyper partisanship is you know okay not only did trump do those things but the history of it has been erased from the republican side right so now it's about convincing republican voters there there was no armed insurrection at the capitol it was just a bunch of protesters and they got yeah they got a little rowdy but it was no big deal right and even with just a couple months to work that message that media machine has had a massive corrosive effect on the ability of republican voters to recognize anti-democratic behavior and or willing like justify it to pretend they don't recognize it right so you know we 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 i think a lot of americans and i hear this in the media i hear this even amongst political electeds on the on the left well we really dodged a bullet no we barely barely dodged that bullet and most of the things that allowed us to overcome them, the Republican Party have either removed from their positions or written new laws to degrade their authority in preparation for the next time, right? So so we're in an ongoing crisis here. And I'm sure, you know, the West looks at it like Biden, you know, did that tour to go and, and uh, um, assure our allies that, oh, America's back and we're, you know, we don't have Trump anymore. And it's not going to be this isolationist and, you know, insulting our NATO partners thing. But the thing that he couldn't tell them or it seemed to recognize that they needed to hear was that our democracy is going to survive. Right. And, you know, I think it's a big open question right now, which is, you know, how somebody who was writing a book about the corrosive influence of fear and emotions and, and psychological warfare on the electorate finds herself now lending those skills to to give the left a little bit of equivalency in those regards, because at the end of the day, this 2022 election, this 2021 election in Virginia, which will set the tone for 2022, it, it, number one, democracy itself is probably going to be determined, and the fundamentals down in the U.S. tend to, um, you know, uh, greatly disadvantage the party in power. And number two, you know, we, we are in a situation where the Republican Party will come out not with guns, not with a cannon, but nuclear bombs in terms of the messaging. And, you know, the left has to figure out, number one, most people aren't like liberals, right? So they aren't well informed. They don't care about policy. Um, they aren't receptive to it, at least as a, as a um, vote motivator, and that most of people's political perception is imagistic and heuristic based, right? So if you're campaign advertising and you're targeting, you can knock at a, a, ten, a, ten, a, a thousand, a hundred thousand doors, right? But if you knock with a shitty message... It, it, it's not going to be effective, right? So yeah, here it's kind of, um, you know, it's I'm amazed every day as I prepare to launch the super PAC what I'm doing now, but I hope to do it in a way that doesn't drive people nuts, right? Yeah, and, and certainly from the Canadian perspective, we hope that works. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you yes, because we're watching this and, 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 you know, Canada's fate is bound up in large part with the fate of the United States. I mean, that's just both from a trade perspective and in a defense perspective, we are uh, deeply ingrained. In fact, with, when it comes to defense, interoperable. So it's actually quite, quite serious. And, and so, uh, you know, Canadians, I think, are rightfully concerned and watching closely because uh, that is central to, to who we are and, and what we're able to do. And diversifying, we're doing some work diversifying on, on trade, but there's only so much you can do. The fact is we share the world's longest Undefended, uh, undefended border. The vast majority of Canadians live within a, 
uh, you know, a couple hundred miles of the border right across Which the is country. good because that's, I'm counting on, you know, being able to sneak across it <laughs> if I need We keep to. hearing that, you know, and, and <laughs> what, what we hear is that it's going to be for our freshwater. But I mean, I, you know, it makes me, when you were, we were talking, I was thinking about climate change because, you know, when I'm talking about strengthening democratic institutions and inclusion and, and egalitarianism, I'm, th- I'm reminded of a line that is attributed to JFK. I'm sure, I don't know who actually said it, but the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. Well, you know, I've got news for us. The sun is not shining. It's cloudy. The downpour is coming. It, the, the, the time to do it is now because we're late. But when the worst of things like climate change starts to hit, it's going to upset our institutions even more and make things even more difficult and worse. And so we've got to double down now. And, and you know what? The U.S. is so fucked. It, the reason is, is because the institutions here are screwed, right? We need to change the institutional system. And the people who have to change it are the people that are the least inclined to do so, right? So any reform you want has to happen legislatively, really, if it's going to be, you know, um, you know, profound, right? And the ver- so, you know, you do feel like you're strapped to a speeding train. You see the end of the tracks going off the cliff. You know, you know... Other people, and, and to be honest with you, you know, many of them are on the left or in the center, but there are some people who are former Republicans who also see this very clearly. And, you know, we, we're we in a moment of crisis down here. I will say this, though, you know, if I was an, an, another Western democracy looking at what's happening here, I would protect my election system and my election infrastructure and keep it from Americanizing as much as humanly possible. Because when you look at, at what ails us, you you know, could we elect better people to willing to fix these institutions? Yes, absolutely. Can we do it under our current election, you know, infrastructure, which is Wild West and, and um, you know, speech unrestrained and money unrestrained? No, we can't, right? Ultimately, because we don't have ideal human citizens to work with who are going to take the time to know everything, you know, about these elections and not use heuristics and not be, you know, especially in the information age that's being weaponized by our worst hostile enemies like Russia and China, other places. I mean, you know, we're so weak in our um, our democracy down here is, is actually almost too robust in terms of speech, which is, you know, a, a thing I never thought I would ever say, having, you know, been teaching intro to American politics and civil rights and civil liberties for years. I used to be a First Amendment ap- absolutist in the way that people are ideological about the Second Amendment. And, you know, now I come to realize, you know, we have a lot of free speech and it's killing us down here, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and you know, so protect though. that infrastructure. You mentioned, you know, you mentioned democracy. From the Canadian perspective, you know, Canada is a robust democracy, uh, but it, it has a lot of checks, uh, you know, checks through the courts, uh, checks through the appointment of officials rather than the election of officials. We don't have an elected head of state. We have uh, well, we have the Queen <laughs> uh, and the Governor General who's appointed. Um, we have uh, lots of elected parliamentary officials who do a lot of work. It's still a, democ- a representative democracy. But looking at the extent to which the United States tries to democratize everything, including in some jurisdictions, sheriffs and judges, which to us seems right, um, crazy. Uh, it's crazy. Right. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, Everything but the dog catcher, and I guess it used to be. Yeah, the dog judges catcher, especially, right? right? I mean, the idea that you should elect judges, right? Is <laughs> wild, right. and the, yeah. the incentives are, and sheriffs, right? I mean, the, the, the incentives are perverse. So much corruption. And, and ballot yes. measures, though. 
But, you know, we don't really do referendums and plebiscites here. We don't have ballot measures for the most part. They're extraordinarily rare. And it's another example of how you get bad governance because, you know, there are just some things that are not well decided by a referendum. And if you look at the state of California, you get a real good example of how you get people saying we want more services and lower taxes. That's exactly <laughs> you got, right. You've got to pick that's... a lane. And if yeah, you no, ask yeah. these questions, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, down here, it's government by ideology, right? I mean, we don't we don't do what makes sense. We do what makes us feel good or, or you know, con, um, you know, uh, aligns well with a worldview or a psycho, you know, philosophical view that we have. And, and it's it's lunacy, right? But yeah, so this has been such a great talk. I could tell we could go fully a second hour, but we're not going to we're going to limit ourselves to one so that the listeners aren't overwhelmed. And um, boy, it's been one of my favorite conversations so far, though, David, I have to tell you. Oh, well, I, it was absolutely my pleasure. I, I could talk, I, I, I could go all damn day, but you're right. We give a break. But I really yeah. appreciate you having me on. This is great. Me too. And again, you know, David's book, Too Dumb for Democracy, and I'll just leave off the, the you know, the equivocation, Too Dumb for Democracy is available on Amazon and, and find booksellers everywhere. I highly recommend that y'all read it. Um, it's uh, It actually will teach you quite a bit about like, where I'm coming from when I'm giving these uh, hot takes on how to elect or electioneer strategically and effectively on the left, because it um, will reveal to you the for the, maybe for the first time the limitations of human enlightenment when it comes to politics, right? So um, yeah, so thanks for coming on the show, and uh, it was a great talk. My pleasure. Thanks so much.